0: Got a lot to say about the world I occupy every day. But when I say what's on my mind, I find I piss people off. You're listening to What the Folk
1: Real talk and raw tunes for Revelationary
0: Times. I'm Sarah Baranowskis. And this is the last time I'll be introducing myself as Emily Yates. Explanation on that later in the episode. After our conversation with Carla Gover, an eighth-generation Eastern Kentuckian whose work is rooted deep in the music-making, storytelling lineages of her Appalachian origins. Through timeless ballads, socially conscious originals, banjo, guitar, and traditional flatfoot dancing, her work connects audiences with stories from her family and community to provide a clearer picture of an often-stereotyped region.
2: It just has really started to sit on my shoulders that I'm becoming one of the elders in, in this field and like, you know, old-time traditional music of Kentucky and dance of Appalachia. And so I felt sort of a calling to, I'm going to really make this robust course with a lot of content and really lay it out.
0: She's also an award-winning singer-songwriter who has released six albums, the latest of which, Wings, by her duo Zoe Speaks, reached number one on the U.S. folk chart. More from Carla in a minute, but first, if you've been enjoying the podcast, you know what I'm about to say, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes and, you know, leave us reviews wherever you do listen and follow us and subscribe to us. And that way, when we launch our Patreon um, or our Venmo or whatever it is that we ask you humbly, to contribute to to keep us uh, alive and a talk and you'll be the first to know <laughs> now to start us off with some mood music it's Carla Gover and her song Dangerous Women
3: come on you fine young fellas Take by me. Be sure you mind your manners and forsake bad company. Look out, take care, beware, be careful what you do. For if something bad should happen, the blame it falls on you. You know that boys are. Sugar and spice, and girls of snails, and puppy dog tails, and not a thing that's nice. And they turn into women with needs hard to control. So you must dress and act like prisoners on parole. Men, watch out, there's Their
1: nature for
3: girls.
2: We'll be girls. So how is your apocalypse going? <laughs> how is my apocalypse going? Well, you know what? It's it's fabulous. It's better than I ever expected my apocalypse to be. Uh, right. <laughs> not having a survival bunker notwithstanding. Um, <laughs> As an artist, it has pushed me out of my regular routines, which were already admittedly pretty uh, pretty loose and, and free form anyway, into doing some things that I never never would have pushed myself to do otherwise. And it's provided me the time and the space. And I think to a certain extent, as much as this is possible with uh, a kid at home still, the solitude to be able to, to create some things that uh, apparently I needed to create. So I am... I'm thrilled. It's it's kind of like I feel a little bit guilty at how much I've been enjoying this because I know I don't take it lightly, <clears throat> the suffering that uh, is also simultaneously going on, the loved ones we've lost to COVID and the suffering of my fellow artists in particular. Um but I also believe that we've got to take the blessings and the goodness where we find it. And I have just found so many blessings during this time. So what can you say? What, you know,
0: (laughs) it's great that you're able to, to get so much uh, juiciness out of, out of, you know, it's this stone (laughs) that we're sort of, uh, all banging our collective head against right now in different ways, but like, I feel like it does, it does help to be able to express creatively right now. I, I honestly don't know what I would do if I didn't have some kind of like creative expression outlet right now. Um, you do all like activism, music. Uh, you is it clogging? It's not clogging. It's flat.
2: It's, it's clogging and flat footing, but I tack the flat footing on. Partially because that word is really popular right now and it's commercially viable for me to do so because I (laughs) do the same kind of dance that I've always done, but also because sometimes with clogging, there's a strand of clogging that's more associated either with like hee-haw and, you know, the like super, um, almost, uh, uh, what's the thing called caricature of, of Appalachian culture, mm-hmm. kind of clogging, you know, which is, is part it is part of the culture here in Appalachia. But also, you know, there's contemporary clogging with uh, like you might see on America's Got Talent, where there's a team of like 15 kids in blue jeans and white clogging shoes. And that's also very different to what I do. So I had the flat Appalachian flat footing clogging just to sort of put a uh, put a descriptor on the fact that you know I'm from eastern Kentucky the music and the dance that I do is very much based out of the culture and the tradition that I was raised with and uh, it's very tied to the traditional music of the region and that's not always true of contemporary clogging so
0: we don't have like a lot of nuance in our stereotypes right at like in the U.S. as like United States Americans we do not really we have our stereotypes of like what is clogging and what is Appalachia and what kind of um, what kind of people do this kind of dancing and I think it's it's so interesting when it comes mainstream on you know things like America's Got Talent but like I also really appreciate you know from reading everything about you like the way you stay true to the roots of all of your art forms is I think it's really rare. We talk about this on the podcast a lot. Um, how like little a sense of history we have in this country. And so any sense of like deep rooted culture and tradition is it's it's really rare and special. <laughs>
2: yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, I've traveled in Europe, so I, I know what you're saying, and the the sense of history and timeline there is is definitely different than what we have here. And yeah, I guess in appalachia our our timeline and connection to history can be a little bit different than the rest of america and even as i was growing up you know i was born in the 70s in appalachia and um, even as i could tell uh, i encountered the stereotypes and the stigma i had a lot of um, aunts and uncles that moved away post world war ii as did everybody in appalachia you know so a lot of us had this phenomenon of cousins that lived in like detroit and cincinnati and indianapolis And then we'd have these encounters with them where, you know, they're (laughs) calling us names and making fun of how we talk. And um, it just kind of increased the stigma that you feel just from being an Eastern Kentuckian or a North Carolinian, I assume, East Tennessee and watching TV and just seeing the jokes that are just made every day. Um, But even as I encountered all that, uh, I could sense that people were also strangely attracted to it. There was there was a way that we were romanticized and our culture was romanticized. And in a way, like, in certain ways, for good reason, just because, you know, I I got to grow up, I watched those cousins that had moved away. Um, I saw the longing that they seemed to have for this rootedness and this connection, not just with the community and the people and the elders that I value so much but also just the land itself and the old home place and the just walking on the same steps that your, that your ancestors have walked on. Um, you know, and that's, that's also a very complex conversation and one that I try to address in my art as an Appalachian, because we are, you know, many of us have a lot of European uh, colonialist blood running through our veins. Uh, I'm, I'm quite a mixed bag genetically, but, you know, I'm majority European and, so that's something I, I think about a lot too, um, in terms of our history, and so that's one of the <clears throat> the things that I, I kind of try to unwhitewash Appalachian history in in the process of presenting the culture, because I feel for a long time that uh, Appalachia was presented. Actually, there was a woman who used to run a folk festival up in northeastern Kentucky, and her tagline for the folk festival was. The last bastion of our pure Anglo ancestry, which is just a crock of you know, you know what, (laughs) wow
0: Wow and a half. Yeah, like just 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 say the quiet part loud, I guess. (laughs) Like, did you you grew up playing playing and performing from? But I've yeah yeah well like
2: most uh, kids in Eastern Kentucky, my first place where I you know, in in quotation marks, performed was in church, because Mm -hmm. if you had any kind of knack for music, or sometimes even if you didn't, you know, you'd be asked to get up and sing. Mm -hmm. So singing in church was my early exposure um, to performance. And I was, you know, surrounded by traditional music in my family, mainly singing, but then in my wider community, there were a lot of really uh, amazing um, purveyors of fiddle and banjo tradition. So I grew up hearing those um, performers at any kind of events, hoedowns or square dances or, you know, school events. So it was all around me. Um, and then my mother, it's really interesting because she's a product of uh, this whole settlement school movement in Eastern Kentucky and Appalachia, oh. you know, I guess. And so these Northerners came and built schools and did a lot of good things in Eastern Kentucky. They built schools to educate the Appalachian children. Um, And my mother attended one of those um, called Oneida Baptist Institute and she loved it. But one of the things that was kind of in the water there that they taught them there was you need to aspire to grow up and better yourself and learn what culture, learn to appreciate culture. And culture was kind of taught to them as something, uh, you know, like in New York, like the ballet and the opera. And so, in part, thanks to my mother, she she made sure that I had a, like a classical music education and piano, and um, later other instruments, band and orchestra when I when I got older. And uh, so, you know, I, I enjoyed that, I appreciate that, I love that, and it, it certainly made me broader as a musician and made me able to communicate with musicians from a lot of different genres that maybe if I had just gotten the traditional side from my family and community, I wouldn't have. So, But, yeah, I've done it ever since I can remember, (laughs) ever since I was little. That's awesome.
1: One thing I was – reading about that was really intriguing to me you mentioned the elders was your whole focus on teaching granny skills and the role your grandmother played in your life so I'd love to hear some more about that and also kind of why you think these are important skills for folks to learn and how you're kind of keeping that knowledge alive in your work
2: okay well that's my favorite thing to talk about in life is my (laughs) grandmother (laughs) so um And, you know, my mother, I had so many amazing members of my family, but, uh, you know, often there's just that special bond between grandparents and grandchildren because they're at a time in their lives when they can, you know, focus in and give you more time. And my grandmother was born in 1898 and um, very much in a subsistence lifestyle, as you might imagine in a rural, rural Kentucky, you know, no electricity and running water, even my mom who was born in the 30s that was still how she grew up. And when, my, when I was little, that was still how my grandmother was living. Um, and a few years after my grandfather died, she came to live with us. So I spent the early part of my life going to visit her little homestead just way back in the middle of nowhere. And then <laughs> then as I got older, she moved to our little bitty homestead way back in the middle of nowhere. And I, I just, she, she was like a walking encyclopedia. And she wasn't atypical. She wasn't anything special for her generation. She just did what everybody knew how to do. She could sew. She could cook. She could can. She made medicine and uh, dolls. She made beautiful dolls and quilts and um, sang most of the time while she was doing it. So um, she really, I think, even though I didn't realize it at the time, was very fixated on giving me what she considered a proper education. Uh, what, a, what a human being and a young woman should know how to do in order to take care of herself and her family. And I happen to believe, you know, that those are the things <clears throat> that cause a human being to, uh, it's a little easier to be sane when you have the opportunity to have connection to the source of your sustenance, whether it's just running up to the uh, spring to get some water in a bucket or uh, raising some food and cooking it right then that day or learning how to save it for later. Um, And it's interesting now, you know, during this pandemic, um, because, I mean, I could get super philosophical in terms of like, how I feel like things that we typically associate with the feminine have been suppressed and repressed and oppressed and devalued and things that we typically associate with the masculine are are vaunted and lauded and exalted Mm -hmm. and how, and, and not that I necessarily think that one, you know, goes to men or women, but I feel like one of the things that's happened during this pandemic, it's, it's sort of like all that masculine striving and doing and, uh, achieving and production and expansion and revenue and growth, like it's just the pause button was hit. And what do people turn to? Oh crap, what if this goes on forever? And I, I don't know how to like, I don't know how to make my own beer and I don't know how to like the, you know, homebrew stores sold out, garden supply stores sold out, uh, bicycle companies. I tried to buy a bike during the pandemic. I couldn't find a bicycle anywhere, anywhere. Like it took me months to buy a bike. <laughs> and and people started to turn to these things that our grand or great grandparents or great great grandparents mm-hmm. all knew and lived with and um so i feel like it's really it's always been important to me to share that but i guess that's part of why i've had a positive experience in my work life and in my profession during the pandemic is because Suddenly, the things that I've always kind of been peddling are, oh, I want to learn that. And, you know, I I threw a bunch of classes at the wall when when things first shut down, like, oh, God, what am I going to do? All my gigs canceled. Like within three weeks, I had I had a huge tour planned. I mean, I was going to Ireland. I was going to Wales and we were going to Mexico with all these different performing groups and poof. So I started offering Zoom classes. And um, the one thing, well, people really wanted the Appalachian songs, but I would put up a a flat-footing class and like put some new hashtags on on Instagram, which I had never much used before the pandemic. And I would wake up, I would have a full class for flat-footing and clogging. And so, you know, um, I think people are, once again, which it seems like we periodically do, uh, recognizing the value of being able to take care of ourselves, entertain ourselves, raise some food, you know, uh, do the things that human beings have been doing for thousands of years until here recently when we've been using DoorDash and Netflix every night, Yeah, which I guess we're still doing that (laughs) quite a bit. Uh,
1: We're we're all incorporating all of it. It's the, um, (laughs)
2: yeah,
1: the Archaic yes. Revival, that's Terence McKenna would say. But yeah, well, you're on a great podcast to um, philosophize. You're also in a good podcast if you enjoy watching the hosts make up words in the middle of interviews. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I make up words regularly. We both, yeah, we're words maker-uppers. I, I like that
2: too. I love port, portmanteaus, they're one of my favorites. What uh, is it? Portmanteaus.
0: Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I. So the the okay. So there was a train of thought I was on before we before we started talking about made up words, um, that you got me on. No, no, it's important. All the trains go to to a place eventually. To generally the same station. Yeah, (laughs) Um, they just go until they don't. It's cool. I'll cut on another one next time. No, but I really. I love how, you know, you're talking about like all of these sort of analog skills or whatever. I think of it as that way. Cause like basically pre-digital world, we had to do a lot more things and know how to do a lot more things and pre like industrial world and pre, you know, capitalism, everyone was basically just responsible for taking care of themselves in their community. And, um, you know, obviously, Humanity did all right with that for a lot of thousands of years, <laughs> and um, <laughs> <laughs> and now in the last like few hundred, we're like, nah, let's just like self destruct, and and a lot of it is because like we we don't actually really have a connection to things that like if we were busy doing them, we wouldn't have enough time to exploit each other and destroy the earth. <laughs>
2: You You might not have time to go, you know, with an uh, automatic rifle into a public place and <laughs> shoot 50 people or whatever, Yeah, you know? right. because you're
0: exhausted because you just carried in all the firewood. Right, exactly. Like, you couldn't be a CEO because that wouldn't exist. Like, <laughs> that just wouldn't be a thing because it produces nothing useful and all of the energy would be needed to go for useful things. Like feeding and clothing and housing and like entertaining each other which is I think why it's so great that you're teaching these classes anybody who can move their feet can (laughs) probably learn I'm I'm what is it like to teach clogging over zoom actually I'm really curious or flat footing
2: you know it's it can be tricky it's honestly easier teaching that than it is to teach singing over zoom I think Um, just because it's, it's a little bit, it lends itself to sort of, okay, repeat after me. Whereas singing, you want to really be like hearing everybody else singing together with clogging. Everybody can kind of mute their mics and I can zoom and I can see everybody moving. And, Mm. um, but what I've noticed, uh, as far as the classes on zoom is I've had feedback like, Oh, I've always wanted to learn this, but there's nobody in my region that teaches it, or I've always wanted to learn this and I'm too old to travel to far away to learn it, or I've always wanted to learn this, but I don't, I can't afford to go to these expensive summer camps where they offer it as a course. And so while internet equity is still an issue, uh, certainly in many parts and in, including Eastern Kentucky, um, places that do have internet, some of those places are able to have access that didn't have access before. So I feel like, well, for instance, this, um, I just closed registration for my Appalachian flat and clogging Academy, which begins, um, February 1st. And this is the first time I've ever offered it. And I would never have created it without the pandemic. And so it was partially like, <clears throat> well, it was kind of a three prong process the way it happened. Um, you know, I was totally desperate for income and I needed to, to do something. And, the Zoom classes were fun, but you can really you can only take it so far, and there were usually some glitches. And I thought, well, how cool would it be to uh, create a really a really awesome digital course that people can access the lessons at their own pace, and then um, even if they're in a different time zone, or even if they don't have good internet, they could download it and watch it later, you know, from somewhere else. So that was one of the factors in wanting to do it. Um, Seeing the community that was created and the people that I was meeting and the people that were meeting each other in my classes made me want to uh, to take it a little bit deeper and broader um, than I had before. And, um, and then also here in Kentucky in the last year, we've lost a couple of our really uh, beloved fiddlers that has been a real blow to our music community because we're, we're a tight knit um, traditional music community across many counties. You know, we see each other, we're like family. And then my primary dance um, mentor, who was originally from Johnson city, Tennessee, but was living in Maryland when she died, she passed away about a year and a half ago. And it just has really started to sit on my shoulders that I'm becoming one of the elders in, in this field and like, you know, old time traditional music of Kentucky and dance of Appalachia. And so I felt sort of a calling to, I'm going to really make this robust course with uh, a lot, a lot of content, eight modules and a whole bunch of lessons and really lay it out for people that want to learn it. And it's been amazing because I have people in the, I have uh, students that have signed up from Ireland and, England and Canada, from coast to coast in the United States. Um, I have 55 people enrolled and it's just, it's exceeded my expectations, but I did work really hard. I totally learned how to create Facebook ads from scratch, which I hated.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's the devil's work. It was a labor of love.
2: It's um, amazing
1: how this time is kind of forcing us to be creative and also kind of forcing this marriage of those kind of
2: analog skills and the digital. Oh my God. Yeah, you should see my guest room with all the wires. I'm sure it's similar with your podcast, just the lights and the wires and the. Oh man, I I never set out to be an AV person, but none of us did. Yeah.
0: (laughs) But that's what we do now because we're like, we need to connect with people. No. Where's the wires? You know. But it's it's also like not only that, but like when what you're saying as far as like stepping into like elderhood, that's so powerful. And I like it's awesome that you can like a lot of people who are holders of a lot of wisdom are kind of, like, pre-digital, like, ages, you know, where it's hard for them to connect, to the use the technology, and not everybody, of course, but, you know, there's... It's just not easy, always, um, for people to, to use all the technology. So being able to do that and to, like, use these methods that we have of staying connected as artificial and wire-heavy as they are, it's going to be the thing that I think holds us together as, as humanity, you know, as, as our systems collapse around us inevitably, you know? It's um, a yeah.
2: So Jenna. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So that was, that was like the, the question in that was like, there wasn't a question. It was just sort of like, yay, you, first of all, <laughs> thank you. And, and the question attached to it is really just, what do you, what have you found to be your most effective Com- ways to communicate all of this like s- this um you know collected wisdom that you get to carry you mean online or just in general i mean i guess i'm talking about like a combination of both right like we learn all these mm-hmm. differently like communi- in person communication skills that we then have to sort of translate into now i only see like the top of your torso
2: mm-hmm. that's a good question um I think it's really a poignant thing to think about as somebody from Appalachia, because, you know, with all kinds of cultures, you see it a lot in in Appalachian culture. But I even I heard Rhiannon Giddens and Greg Adams giving a a talk about um, minstrel shows, minstrel culture in early America. And Greg Adams said something like it was he said something like how frequently did early African-American performers participate in their own oppression in the interest of economic gain? Because they, you know, of course, learned that if they gave the audience the same old stereotype that they wanted to see, that it would they would earn a better living, you know, sadly. Um, and it was even more damaging, you know, back then than like Hee Haw. I grew up with Hee Haw in the 70s and uh mm-hmm that was a show that was definitely (laughs) participating in if not oppression and certainly some really, really reductionist stereotypes. And even though many, many Appalachian people loved it, uh, my mother included um, it's so thinking about it for me. um, I mean, on the one hand, I don't believe in, Trying to have some sort of big authenticity contest. I've noticed that, like sometimes in PR kits and stuff, people are, you know, the most authentic voice of <laughs> these. You know, and it's like, yeah, uh, I, I don't, I don't think in general if you're off, if you're like communicating authentically and you're being real, it speaks for itself. Yeah. On the other hand, we do live in a marketing world, and we do have to. Put ourselves out there and give people some idea of who we are, and that's that's what we call branding in marketing mm-hmm. world. <laughs> a, mm-hmm. a de facto online marketing expert—that's uh, I really have. I, I'm joking, but I have studied marketing with the intensity of somebody getting an MBA uh, during the pandemic, like all every aspect I can find geared towards artists, geared towards musicians, and so I I have had to put a lot of thought into okay. I don't want to overly exaggerate. You know, I'm so hillbilly, youngins, children, brothers, and sisters. I'm the most hillbillyest hillbilly you'll ever just, ever see. Um, because, because you know, I don't know. People would probably go for that. Uh, I could probably sell some some product or something if I did that. But you know, I want to try to be true to myself and have some dignity and have some like. This is my story. This is my experience. This is what it means to me to be a Kentuckian. Um, and so, yeah, I have to think, how can I convey that, especially online? How can I convey it through, like, I'm getting ready to redo my website. Like, what photos do I want to put? What phrases? How do I want to, I'm going to put everything in first person. I'm going to invite people into my world <clears throat> because I'm trying to create these connections. Uh, one thing that, ha- the one organization that has, pro- profoundly influenced me. It was, it was born the same year I was in my hometown. It's called Apple shop. Um, it's a multimedia organization in Whitesburg, Kentucky. And, um, they're kind of a big deal. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) they, they have a radio station, a record label, an archive, and they have created film after film after film. And the whole goal has been to, um, portray a narrative of Appalachia by Appalachians Mm -hmm. in counter to the, you know, never ending stream of outsider voices that are defining us and telling us who we are and what our problems are and what we need to do to fix them or sort of romanticizing us or vilifying us or, you Mm -hmm. know, it's your own fault. You're addicted to drugs anyway, and you just need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And um, Apple Shop has they also have a like a theater company in residence that I used to see a lot. They they had a music fest have a music festival that I went to as a kid called Seed Time on the Cumberland. And so everything about the way they have encouraged Kentuckians and Appalachians, all Appalachians, not just Kentuckians, to um retake our narrative has influenced who I am as an artist. So Big props to Apple Shop. That's, um, yeah, I think that's
1: really powerful, because especially in an area like Appalachia, it can be very evocative for people in either, like you were saying, overly romanticized or overly (laughs) negative ways. Um, And your sense of place comes out so strong in your writing and your music and just in this conversation we're having right now. What are some of the stories you'd want to tell to people that you feel like should be being told coming out of Appalachia? I know that's kind of a big question, but... You can interpret that.
2: Well, to me, one of the biggest things that needs to be talked about whenever anybody wants to have a conversation about Appalachia, and this is the part that a lot of people want to leave out. <coughs> cough, cough, he'll be the elegy. Um, <laughs> is <laughs> you can't have an intelligent conversation and a nuanced conversation about the issues that are affecting Appalachia without acknowledging the extent to which really, really awful policy, unfair tax policy and land ownership policies have systematically for two centuries uh, extracted the wealth without adequately leaving roads and schools and infrastructure that by, by any, any measure of any kind of fairness whatsoever should have been constantly building up the area um throughout the entire the entire history of the region um so I, I, and i think that so often gets left out we have i can't like i could scream for how many think pieces people come i like we're lucky if they actually come to Appalachia to write these think pieces most of the time they i think i imagine they're sitting in like an office in new york <clears throat> writing the think pieces <laughs> actually visiting our state right. I feel like people try to address, what's wrong? What happened here? What's wrong? Why are people voting against their own interests? Why are so many people continuing to be addicted to drugs? What, you know, why don't people pursue bettering themselves and getting a higher education? And it's like, you, you can't have those kinds of conversations without looking at the historical context. And what's, I mean, and still, still the absentee ownership of land and mineral rights
0: continues. Exactly. Well, that's a lot about, like you know, Eleanor Goldfield, who's one of my good friends and a previous guest of ours, um, she had just recently released a film called Hard Road of Hope in which she went to down to West Virginia and spent a lot of time with folks who'd been um, affected by all the mining there and all of the extraction, all of the everything, and, um, you know, because she... Felt exactly how you do that most of the stories coming back were not coming from people who actually took the time to learn about who who is uh, who is controlling the wealth down there and who's who is actually making it difficult for people to thrive and, and who are the people struggling and what is their story And, you know, why are they called rednecks that she enlightened, enlightened us about why they're called rednecks (laughs) due to the resistance to the coal barons, uh, collectively wearing a, the red scarves or something. Yeah. With red scarves, you know, so it was, it was actually, it's, it's an interesting thing how the, the symbol of resistance has become a symbol of, you know, backwardness. Um, and you know, you can't help. But notice how that's probably on purpose, just like what you're saying. There's this depiction of of people who won't pull themselves up. And it's like, well, will people not or can people not because they're being held down with, you know, a giant fist?
2: Well, I mean, there's no there's no denying that it has been politically and economically expedient throughout history for people to have a certain concept of Appalachia that um, makes it perhaps less guilt-inducing to continue exploiting on the level that has happened for so long. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the pharmaceutical industry's most recent, you know, egregious, egregious sins in the area with the the OxyContin um, and opioid kind of pushing from from drug companies and and families Uh, it's unconscionable and that that also isn't isn't talked about it's like what's just it's more what's wrong with these people
0: right well because if we were going to talk about the opioid epidemic we would have to talk about the war in Afghanistan which is where all the poppy fields are and then we would have to talk about all the people getting pulled into the military because they can't Get other kinds of work And then they're basically sent home And prescribed opioids from the places That they were just occupying It's um, it's so many conversations at once You know, like when you say well, I agree, like we can't have those conversations Because we would have to have all of them And the the powers that be can't have that um, Which is why it's so important To be, you know, sharing this knowledge of you know real life which is not like this you know it's great to learn about marketing and how to how to you know do things to get ourselves out there because we have to but it's like when you're coming back to what are the survival skills that we need Mm -hmm. both in our for our hearts and our bodies yeah that is really important work (laughs)
1: yeah storytelling is a survival skill yeah
0: yeah It is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to make sure to ask about some of your activism work down there, um, especially the cornbread and tortillas project and just some of the work you've done around immigration and some of those issues, how you see them um, playing out in Appalachia or Appalachia.
2: Um, yeah, that, so one, one thing that really influenced me as a kid is that, um, when I went to first grade, the first friend I made uh, was from the Philippines, and her dad was a doctor. and we just you know just we just got along super well and we were best friends all growing up. and I spent tons of time at her house and got to experience uh, I met a ton of the other doctors' families who were a lot of international doctors who were in Eastern Kentucky paying off their medical debt or their medical uh, school service um, by serving there and it just it was a precious experience to me and I think it sort of predisposed me to reflect back on my own culture in a way that a lot of times you don't when you're a kid and to realize oh I do have there is a culture here and it's not just ballet in New York we have a culture here. So between, you know, hanging out with the international families and then um Apple Shop and the eye-opening work that they did, I think it predisposed me to when I moved to Lexington to go to college and um in the 80s uh I started taking Spanish and because it was really fun and our, and the university of Kentucky had a really, really good Spanish program. I became fluent in Spanish and uh, thank God, because I was a teenager and my brain was young know, I and mean, I studied it when I could still learn it. Mm-hmm. And I started to make friends from, uh, Latin America, different, different countries, you know, uh, but I started to see so many, I, cause I was really homesick. Number one, I was homesick, uh, for even though it wasn't that far away in Lexington it seemed really different culturally to eastern kentucky and but i started seeing so many cultural overlaps between traditional cultures in in different parts of latin america and appalachian culture i mean everything from the way there's like these european and indigenous cultures kind of all all mixed up together and the the extreme reverence for grandparents mm. Some of my uh, some of my Mexican friends in college, you know, that was like, yeah, you get it, you know what I'm talking about. it's my grandma <laughs> um, and just like this sort of predisposition to have these huge family gatherings with food and music and just I don't know there was there's just a lot that really um that hit my heart as as really being connected, and it was it, is, it was at a time in Kentucky when we were having a lot, <clears throat> I mean, it had been going on, immigration from Latin America to Kentucky had been going on at a certain pace since, I think the 40s or 50s, probably even earlier, I'm not an expert on when that started happening, but because of tobacco and horses mm. uh, in, in central Kentucky. And so um, to me, uh, it seemed like, wow, it would be just really awesome it, it would be a shame if these groups of people that have been here and these groups of people that are coming here didn't realize how many things they have in common. And I had that seed in my mind for, in my heart for a long time of wanting to do some kind of project. And I was like, it's cornbread and tortillas. You know, they're just, it's so, they're so similar, these cultures, these mm-hmm. groups of people. And so um, about six years ago, I ran into this This person, this man that I had gone to school with briefly as a as a kid, like in in uh, high school. And then we lost touch. And he was in a band called Apple Latin, which half of them are from Eastern Kentucky. He was from Eastern Kentucky. And then the other half was from Latin America, different countries in Latin America. And I was like, oh, my God, maybe maybe I can collaborate with them and finally do this cornbread and tortillas project. So um, that's exactly what we did about a year later, he and I started dating. And so he's, he's my life partner. We've been together five years now. And it's really interesting because he's Greek Appalachian and his family came to Appalachia to work in the coal mines when the miners were striking in West Virginia. So wow. that's a whole different story. We won't get into that right now, but um,
0: <laughs> lots of he, layers he, here. Yeah.
2: So he lived in Honduras and has really awesome Spanish and got into different musical styles of Latin America. And so eventually, you know, cut to the chase, we worked with a, um, a director for a Cuban American director named Haiti Canovas from Louisville, Kentucky. And she helped us take our personal life stories and create devised theater from them. And it's bilingual. Um, and then we do, Uh, there's a Mexican-American ballet folklorico dancer as part of the group. And she and I do these like folklorico clogging, you know, battle duet kind of things. She does some uh, traditional Mexican dancing. Um, The, one of the singers from Nicaragua does a, a monologue on making tortillas in his kitchen with his mother growing up. And I do a monologue on making cornbread with my grandmother and my daughter's in it. She plays fiddle and we clog together and her husband's in it. And, um, and then there's an Ecuadorian master musician who uh, makes all of his own pan flutes, and he plays charango. And so we, it's like a bilingual theater production. We're just showing all these different connections you know, commonalities of the human experience. And it's more than just, you know, I'm sure cultures, people from any culture could recognize because we're just, you know, we're celebrating uh, the similarities we have. And it's that project has evolved during this last four years, during this time of extreme rhetoric and anti-immigration and all the horrible border seizures of children and separations and building the wall and, for us, it has been, I mean, we haven't been able to do it now. We had a bunch of big shows lined up right right before uh, um, everything yeah, happened. Yeah. Just a minute, buddy. <laughs> um, so we haven't been able to do it for a while, but it's it's been definitely our medicine and our spell and our song and our antidote as best we can against the hatefulness. Because yeah. one thing that we find is that You know, you can march and you can shout and you can uh, lecture and and we have to do all of those things. But when you throw a big party and you have food and dancing and music, sometimes that goes a long way towards changing people's hearts in a way that other stuff
0: might not get to certain people. You know, that sounds a lot like, oh, I'll be quick because I think we both had a thought at the same time (laughs) it sounds maybe the same thought it sounds a lot like what ash was talking about ash ashley woodard henderson the co-executive director of the highlander center in um new market tennessee she was on the on one of our early episodes and we talked a lot about how you know resistance is joyfulness and um, and how community building is resistance because, um, you know, this system wants to kind of crush us and keep us thinking like we're individuals so that we don't realize that we're getting collectively oppressed and that we need to have our communities strong. And so when you're doing things like, like that, you're actually, you know, that's the joy and the... And the resistance that like keeps people fueled for all the other less joyful pieces of resistance.
1: I mean, I was kind of say kind of a version of that, just that it's a really powerful example, especially right now when things just seem like they're getting even more and more divisive. And 2021 kicked off with, you know, quite a divisive (laughs) event, if you wanted an illustration of that, that there are spaces where we can make connections and find stories and commonalities um you know either in struggle or just in shared you know relationships with our family and all those like cultural connections I think that's really powerful work and it seems like that's really baked into a lot of your different projects
2: well yeah I I I just uh like a lot of people just want to make a difference and um I'd like to make good art that I can feel good about. And, you know, I, I want to create material that's artistically refined. I was having a conversation yesterday with my partner about, about songwriting and how, you know, when you're a folk singer, it can be easy to sort of, you know, you start trying to write a song and it's just so earnest and it's just so preachy. And, you know, that that doesn't really appeal to everybody now. Some people love a good earnest preachy folk song, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's something dinner- in their hearts, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I want to make stuff that's relevant and, uh, feels, feels authentic and true to my artistic sensibilities. And, um, but, I, and I also just believe it's, it's so crucial that wherever we are, we're doing, uh, we're doing, social justice work, economic justice, and especially right now, racial justice, because, mm-hmm. you know, I I have strong feelings as an Appalachian about wanting to help undo some of the, the way that our cultural narrative is, is spun for us by people outside the region. But it's, it's always on my heart that people of color are like physically in danger right now because of the oppression mm-hmm. and the, the injustice in the system. And so, you know, I'm always trying to find appropriate and respectful and relevant ways to address that through the arts or through whatever, you know, aspect of my life I can. And some, you know, as we all know, it can be hard to know exactly what to do, what's going to be most effective and powerful and meaningful. But, you know, for me working with um, immigrants and people of color, uh, in an artistic setting and having difficult conversations and learning to really listen and, um, and hear uncomfortable things. Sometimes it's, it's not always easy, but it's so, so needed. And so I just feel, feel fortunate to be able to make art. And, uh, it's great to talk to folks like you who are, you know, trying to amplify these types of messages in the world, create connections.
0: Feels like all we can do these days sometimes is to just the least you know, we can do. <laughs> yeah, like and and especially you know with songwriting and with music, you know I've been a songwriter for you know the later part of my adult life now, and uh, have found it to be a really great way to communicate some of these more difficult messages. And and I really you know I've I've been really enjoying some of your music and. Um, I really, I loved your song Snowflake on your website, but I thought it really did a great job of kind of towing that line of like earnestness, but also like, and here's a little jab right there in your feels. How about that? Yeah. Which is my favorite.
2: <laughs> that one was like, that's as folky as anything I've ever written in my whole entire life. And it's because I was asked to sing at the Women's March uh, in uh-huh. Kentucky, the very first one. Mm-hmm. and I couldn't think of what to sing, so I stayed up all night listening to Woody Guthrie, like the night before. I mean, not all night, but till like three, which is basically all night for me, mm-hmm. and also this, simultaneously, my son had been listening to this um, Schoolhouse Rock CD over and over and over and over and over and over again. Oh. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> <Until> <laughs> good, I good woke ahead. up, I woke up and I opened Facebook and there are all these like moms and little girls with little pink kitty cat hats on. And (laughs) and that song, it just popped out. It was like, it was kind of schoolhouse Rocky. Yeah. Woody Guthrie ish, but it's definitely outside what I normally, I normally write stuff that's either more Appalachian sounding or just more kind of dreamy poetic stuff.
0: You could tell that it's not like that. You're not like a, all the time folk singer because you have this sort of like look on your face of like, here's a folk song. And I, I adore that. Like, you know, self-aware folkery is, is my jam. I loved, I love your music. Like, I think it's absolutely like captivating. And, and, uh, and I just thought it was really sweet that you also had that, that other side that just popped up and was like, Oh, cute little folk song. Well, the, um,
2: The Women's March, because they they asked me to play like three years in a row, and every year I was like, oh my God, okay, I've got to do something good. And so they sort of, it was also a catalyst for my most recent release, which I have to tell you a funny story, speaking of folk with a capital freaking F. (laughs) Um, I had always loved the Peggy Seeger song called B-Side, which... I don't know if you guys checked out the video or the song Dangerous Women.
1: I did. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. So this is perfect.
2: <laughs> so, well, it's, yay. <laughs> it's a good little bookend to what we've yeah. been talking about. So yeah. um, I really always loved the song, but I, I never was able to sing it very well just because Peggy's style of singing is very, very different than mine. And I'm always, you just I'm just more like of a ballad singer. And she has that beautiful high kind of, you know, almost like Judy Collins or somebody kind of voice. And, but that song, oh my God, I I did sing some kind of version of it for the Women's March a couple years ago. And it's all, for anybody that hasn't heard it, the original song is called B-Side. And um, I rewrote the song and totally changed the melody and kept a lot of the lyrics, but added new lyrics too. And performed it with my daughter and we called it Dangerous Women, but the premise of it, is that um, you, it's a song that is warning men about all the dangerous women out there. So, you know, in Appalachia, we have a tradition called a warning ballad, which instructs young women about the proper methods of comportment so as to avoid disaster and character failure or, you know, being associated with scandal or, or getting hurt or, you know, Unspeakable things happen to you when you go walking. So, I just took that whole concept of a warning ballad and applied it to Peggy Seeger's song. And so it's like telling men how to behave to watch out for these lustful women, and you know they just can't control themselves, guys. You've got to understand it's just how they were made. So you got, <laughs> got to learn how to dress. You got to learn how to you know, just protect yourself because, uh, and it, cause if you go to court and something happens, you know, they're going to say you were asking for it and they're going to say you were dressed <laughs> for it. And just, so guys, you know, look, you've just gotta, you just gotta learn how to, to behave in such a way to, to avoid being attacked or, you know, so it, it just it's a, <laughs> totally flips the script. And so, um, I, First of all, after I performed B-side, somehow, I don't know how this happened, I performed B-side at the Women's March in Kentucky, in Lexington, Kentucky, and I got an email from Peggy Seeger the next day. She's like, I heard you perform my song at the Women's March, you know, I'm really glad, you know, and I've got other songs if you think you might want to record some of them and, you know, she's like, wow, this this is great, I've got an email from Peggy Seeger and I, I just, you know, replied with some kind of polite reply and then it was like a couple years later, uh, earlier this year, we recorded Dangerous Women. I kind of wrote it and recorded it. And <laughs> I sent her, we made a rough video. We didn't have a big budget. So we just kind of slammed something together. And we, my daughter and I got our partners to be the, the scared men, the timid <laughs> men. And mm-hmm. I got a bunch of my friends, uh, it's a multicultural um, dance ensemble to do this sort of menacing dance as they walk down the street so anyway it's a fun video but I sent it to Peggy and I sent her the song and I sent her the lyrics and she's like well I really like what you've done I like the song and I like I like the tune but the video is it's not angry enough and it is not you are not portraying what really happens to women in the world you know women have to deal they find us dead in ditches you know it's little girls it's women it's she, you know, she was like, I know I'm probably, you're probably not going to like hearing this, but I'm 85 and I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like, no, 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 it's great. I totally, you know, can't remake the video. And she's like, that's fine. You don't have to remake the video. Here's some suggestions. You could, you could insert still images from other places where you can, uh, you can put some facts. And so I, I wasn't comfortable putting necessarily violent imagery in there. So we just collected a bunch of, data about violence against women and how many women are raped and how many women are assaulted by intimate partners. And uh, so throughout the video, we intersperse those things. And so the video does have some humor and, um, you know, I think it's entertaining, but it's a, it's about a very serious subject matter. And I have to say uh, I have had a little bit of backlash. The word feminism itself in, well, all over the United States, there are certain people that it makes uncomfortable, but in Eastern Kentucky, I grew up in a fundamentalist, patriarchal church Mm -hmm. as they come, and that's not a popular word, so I'm, you know, when I'm sharing my Appalachian feminist ballad in old-timey banjo forums on Facebook, and I'm, you know, I'm tweaking some people off, but I figure if I'm not, I'm not doing my job as a folk singer, so.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I've been having this conversation with people on the internets, on social media a lot lately. They're like, the way you say that is making me uncomfortable. And I'm like, good. (laughs) Because you weren't uncomfortable enough before. it. So I'm really glad that you're taking that. Like, yes, I agree with Peggy. Make it more real always, because I think... Another, I grew up in a fundamentalist, patriarchal church as well. And it really, you know, it does get it into our minds that it's our fault for being attacked. And it never Mm -hmm. flips the script. And the things that we've incorporated into our daily lives to avoid being killed.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that we just take for granted. Honestly, singing (laughs) that song, there have been certain men that are just... They'll come up after, you know, not that they're being mean, but they're like, what, what, so what, what, what were you saying in the song that like, like men have to be scared or something? You're like, they they can't even, they can't even imagine the world that we live in. They have no frame of reference. So that's what I was trying to do. I wanted to evoke some empathy and just like, hey you know what, this is how it is guys. And you're a good man and I want you to know it. And I want you to speak up too. We need, we need our good men to speak up. Yeah.
1: And that it ties together too. I like how it's that kind of warning ballad tradition and kind of flipping that. So it ties again, like that kind of legacy that you were born into and that you're pulling from in your art, but making it this contemporary experience. And that's, yeah, really well done. Is there anything else we haven't covered that you want to cover, and um, where can people find you?
2: Well, um, things are mostly on uh, carlagover.com. Cool. That's a good good place to find me. I'm on Facebook and uh, at Kentucky Carla on Instagram. But um, i mean, you know I'm trying to get better at all that all that presence online. Um, I'm trying to bring my website out of 2006 bring it into the modern age. But if you come and say, hi, you know, I'll give you a free song or a free little, there's a free dance lesson if they want to come get it on there, cool. not up and get a free Appalachian flat fitting and clogging lesson just to sweeten the deal. So I do love to stay in touch. I have taken up the practice of writing these really personal um, sort of revelatory vulnerable emails to my mailing list during the pandemic. And I, I can't believe there's. it's been scary, but I've had people just loving it. They're like, oh, it's the highlight of my pandemic. I can't wait for your emails. I just, I just love to get them every week. And so that's, that's, if you want to get letters from me, brothers (laughs) and sisters, just come and get on, get on my mailing list and we'll talk.
0: Oh awesome. fantastic. You're kind of inspiring me to do that. I have a mailing list that <laughs> it's I, I tend to write very like perfunctory things like, hey, I've got new things out and could you check them out? But if I was like, let me tell you about the week I've had.
2: <laughs> Honey, no, you
0: <laughs> need to. You need
2: to. That yeah for, yeah, for 10 years, my emails were like, new shows coming soon, new CD almost right, you know, so boring. But in this day and age, nobody wants to open those emails. No. My most opened email has been, one of them was, we should talk was my subject line. <laughs> um, and then another, and it's just, I'm just sharing all these facts about myself. And I ask people to share things with me. And then another one was uh, an embarrassing confession. And my embarrassing confession, uh, sorry if I'm giving it away here, but was about how I actually really liked the TV show <laughs> Beverly Hillbillies cause it's so freaking funny. <laughs> <laughs> but that one has gotten a lot of response too. So, <laughs> but it's really fun. That's and it great. really, I'm telling you my, my email list has sustained me Has sustained me as people have like bought me grocery cards during the pandemic and, uh, came out in spades to support our last kickstarter Mm. and i've been keeping an email list ever since uh email started and it it it, as an independent artist if there's anybody out there listening who is an artist a musician you've got to email your people and you got to get to know them and you've got to share yourself with them it's really important even if you think you're not a great writer just do it you won't regret it Mm. i believe I believe
0: in <laughs> people. you're actually like, saying that directly to me just all right. so you know, because I am a bad mailing lister I think I like I went super vulnerable for a while and then I got scared and I like came I'm back and was me. like no I've only got shows now no more feelings no 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 more feelings tell me shows here's a CD now here's a record you know <laughs> um but that's that's awesome. And that is I think it speaks to the fact that like being able to be brave enough to be our authentic selves is in and of itself like a, a way to subvert this oppressive system that wants us to forget that even though we're all connected, we are all we all have a real self, a real us there that's getting this tired of getting, you know, kind of squashed into into a little mold of productivity, masculine productivity.
2: That's right. So we got to stick it to the man <laughs> with our she bandos, in our email, our
0: feelings,
1: <laughs> and our podcast, and our podcast. Yes.
2: Oh. Wow. Thank you so much for having me. I have uh, yeah. promised cookies to a particular nine-year-old boy that lives in my house, and so I have to go yeah they are probably no problem. good on that so Tell him
0: thank you for <laughs> yeah, sharing
2: <it> <laughs> uh, <laughs> for sharing you with us yeah well it's so awesome to talk to you and uh, hopefully I can meet you in person someday
0: yeah hopefully hey, let's cross
2: our fingers and, yeah.
0: <laughs> and in the meantime I'll listen to your music and really continue to love it and uh, please keep in touch with us and let us know about your projects that you're working on because we would love to help you know get the word out as, in as much as we yeah. ever can.
2: Alright, well thank you so much. <laughs> awesome, thanks Carla. Bye, okay. Carla. Be careful
3: when I walk in and travel two by two For if a lustful woman, she turn her gaze on you but If you look glum, she'll say Won't you smile for me now, boy And if you tell her no she'll think you're playing coy. Cover up your legs and button up your shirt For if you are attacked and you take the woman to court The judges all are women who say you were dressed for sport The lawyers all are women Watch out, there's dangerous women about Boys take care, they could be anywhere It's just the way God made them, it's the way of this whole world You mustn't tempt their nature for girls we'll be
1: Did we learn from Carla?
0: Oh my God, We learned so many things from Carla. I feel like like one of the things that really, really resonated with me so much was just the idea of family traditions and passing down these really important, what she calls granny skills, just in how to uh, how to live life better from like a wiser and more elder informed.
1: yeah it's like almost seen as like a kind of quaint hobby to do those things like canning and and gardening and you know kind of basic survival skills or what used to be basic survival skills but you know because everything's been made so convenient for us now um yeah and I often wonder like what would happen if all those conveniences were taken away and like how long would it take us to like readjust and figure it out and would we be able to readjust
0: (laughs) i like i believe in us i think i think that it would be um there would be a lot of trial and error but um you know as far as right now we even just we watch it develop in our like Places where government fails us, mutual aid has been stepping in, like in Texas, yeah, where it's been just like freezing. I saw, I saw a, a post that about a musician uh, who froze to death in his house. Oh my god! Um, like, and people like in his house, like people freezing to death in their houses is a thing that you expect government to have a plan for.
1: Right. Well, I feel like after the past year, the government's plan is clearly make money, fuck human life. But yeah, we'll put I actually more
0: more transparently. Yeah, more and
1: more (laughs) transparently. I mean, that was always the plan, but You know, yes, more (laughs) transparently. That just reminds me, I'll put a link in the show notes to a really good spreadsheet someone made of Texas mutual aid organizations. Um, I spent some time in Austin. I have friends down there that stuff that's happening down there is wild and just a really good example of what happens when your government doesn't take care of people. So
0: right. shout out and to like Texas how, right now. Much love yeah. to Texas. So Yeah. Lots of love to Texas. And um, it's a perfect example of what happens when free market capitalism just sort of goes unfettered and um, without oversight and it, uh, I hope, I would like to hope that the spin around it is not so effective that people somehow believe that more unfettered free market capitalism is what's needed. Um, I hope that the conclusion we all come to is that resources should be shared and actually free. (laughs) So, um, yeah, you know. Baby steps. (laughs) Well,
1: the thing that I've thought about with Texas, that's kind of interesting, is it's like at some point reality is going to present the truth to you so harshly. Like how much how much mental effort are you willing to take to, you know, hold on to your old stories? Because I feel like even conservatives in Texas who are living through this have got to be like,
0: okay, (laughs) what, right? Like how high of a wall of bullshit are we planning to build around ourselves up to and over our own heads are we planning to bury ourselves within the wall of bullshit I don't know I mean
1: I mean I'd like to think not but I also feel like if nothing else, I'm always amazed by people's ability to fucking hold on to a narrative, even if it's literally
0: killing them. <laughs> so. It's really impressive. Like, go people in that way. Like, we really are masters and, you know, mistresses. I want to be a mistress of self-delusion one day. No, I don't. We're <laughs> But that, we're, we're really, really good at telling ourselves that things are different than they are. I guess I'm probably... Um, I don't guess I know I'm just as, as guilty of it or as susceptible to it. It's not guilt. I don't have any guilt. It's a human thing. Yeah, I think it's we we're all, have all guilty a really of it hard time seeing other people's narratives once we decide what it is. It's how we are
1: Another thing I just thought of
0: with the Texas
1: thing that kind of relates to a lot of what Carla was saying about Appalachia is um, you know some of the reactions by like liberal the liberal commentariat the uh, fucking shit libs are like, oh, ha ha, Texas gets what they deserve because people just they act like Texas is all one unified giant red state on a cow ranch because people have never been to Texas and don't understand the diversity and different you know cultures that exist down there but also like it's that whole kind of snobbery towards people in the red states that is something i really had to unlearn a lot because i was Mm -hmm. definitely guilty of this too like oh why are these people always voting against their own interests and if only they would listen to us like they would do so much better and all our problems would be solved and it's like no that's bullshit you're really flattening the narrative around those people and the different regions and the, you know, diversity of opinions and perspectives that exist there. But you're also not looking at, like, why a lot of those places are the way they are. And Carla did a good job of talking about, you know, resource extraction and the sort of, like, purposeful, systematic poverty that's hit a lot of mm-hmm. those regions of the country.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Both uh, Texas and, you know, Kentucky and um, West Virginia and, like, the coal mining states, all any... All of those places where oil and gas and coal have and fossil fuels in general have been extracted or are currently being extracted from the earth are places where, you know, corporations have come in and staked claims and purchased politicians, and that's what makes them, you know, quote-unquote, red states. It's not that the people there all think one way. It's just, you know, the loudest voices um, are the angry, greedy, racist voices in those places because that's who owns things. The fact is that all of these uh places that we're talking about, you know, in the in the South, are full of um people just as radical, if not more so, than people in other parts of the country that you would consider, you know, left. You know, there are there are incredible movements and even, I mean, there's just regular people who aren't um, ridiculously conservative or, you know, ridiculously white supremacist, nationalist, um, you know, wannabe fascists. There, there's, there's plenty of them. You just go and meet them there. There they are. It's funny,
1: the people who scream loudest about bigotry often don't see how they kind of reflect the shadow side of that, and how they will stereotype and kind of otherize entire parts of the country, because it makes them feel better about themselves, it makes them feel more enlightened by default. And not to say that the criticisms and ignorance and bigotry doesn't exist in those places, but you can't flatten the narrative around a place and you can't just look at things like an outsider without trying mm-hmm. to do your homework and trying to actually get to know the human beings who are behind these, like, stories that you want to tell yourself about a place.
0: Yeah. Also, you know, something, I mean, something that we all do, like, human nature is so interesting. I think we just other and other and other constantly. Like, we just always find reasons because there are there's always a, a place in the region that's like the butt of the jokes like when i lived in missouri it was people in arkansas who were the butt of the jokes when i lived in georgia it was people in alabama mississippi it's like there's always some place <laughs> within the place it's and it's really interesting to see the ways that we that we like set ourselves up to be superior to one another as we As we can or we see fit. (laughs) We're hilarious. This is like a human
1: phenomenon that there's always got to be someone that you're shitting on. No matter who you are, no matter what you come from, there's got to be somebody that's like the butt of your joke. So,
0: Or at least like somebody. I I feel like our next, you know, evolution is going to be graduating from like shitting on each other to... Like, lifting each other up, but also, like, entertaining each other. Like, I feel like we can still be funny and not be assholes. And we can, like, speaking as somebody who, like, intentionally, you know, pokes at people's um, comfort zones and then, like, giggles and runs away. <laughs> we can be assholes about the
1: right things. And, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah we decide what the right things are. (laughs) It's so, but I I do feel like, like, it's, it's great to be able to have these conversations that are, like, way more nuanced. You know, Carla, I feel like, really um, shed a lot of light on how she um, has found ways to relate to people, regardless of where they are, and to still, like, be true to her own, like, Her own grounding, her own tradition, and her location. Like, she is her story, and she allows other people to be their stories.
1: Yeah. Or, like, drawing those connections, like the Cornbread and Tortillas Project. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just such a good example of that.
0: Yeah. Because
1: when you see how people have stories, like, all of our stories in some ways are similar as human beings, even if the specifics may differ.
0: So it's... Yeah, and we get so used to those narratives of, like, difference that we miss the similarities in in our you know inherent being and we create differences where they like don't need to be
1: (laughs) and it's like as we always say in here it's a not either or it's both and the unique things about your story about your culture your racial background the country you come from wherever like those are some things that are important to honor and like look at you know especially how they intersect with systems of power but then there's also like these really baseline human humanity that we need to see in each other i mean i think literally our survival depends on us fucking getting that memo so you know
0: yeah exactly like we're all stupid and smart at the same time And I mean, speaking for me personally, I know I'm like way stupid about a lot of things and, and I'm, and I'm pretty smart about some things. Like, I don't know. But I'm not I don't know most things, although I am really good at talking like I know most things, which is a skill I don't recommend everyone pick up.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I think I have the opposite, which I think we've talked about, too, where I'm like, uh, I'm really always doubting myself and always saying, like, I could be wrong about this. But, you know,
0: oh, my God. Now this is my family tradition is um of being able to just talk shit for as long as air needs to be filled. It's, it's family special. tradition. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Why
0: do yeah. you drink
1: to get drunk?
0: Okay, I want torture everyone <laughs> with Hank Williams to- Jr. <laughs> I know like, I like you just brought me back to all of the dive bars in Georgia that I used to sway drunkenly with other soldiers and sing that song with.
1: I mean, he <laughs> Jenner,
0: he's got a few. He's got a few bangers. <laughs> oh man. It was always that one in the David Allen Coe song which which I found out later was a John Prine song actually that you never even called me by my name.
1: Oh yeah, I think Steve Goodman actually helped him write that. So I didn't know that was a John Prine song. So, um,
0: I believe it was.
1: Yeah. Really quick. It's it's written by Steve Goodman and John Prine. So you're correct. Yeah. Prine is uncredited on the song.
0: Whoa! But anyway, I digress. We should be talking about Carla's music. <laughs> yeah, not like seriously because like I love her music and yeah, that's great. Like that dangerous women song that you know that she was talking about is a perfect example of you know taking that um, taking that like division that we've that we've got that creates like you know the patriarchal uh, confidence that allows men to not know what it's like to walk around afraid. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> or at least cis straight men, cis straight white men, a segment of men can walk around unafraid. Yeah,
1: and I like that, again, it's a good example for kind of building connections, you know, centering the stories of, you know, in this case, women's experiences, but then also going back to those rooted like those rooted traditions of like the warning ballad like in Appalachia that was sort of like mm-hmm. trying to pass on moral codes and behavior like via songwriting like it's a really it's just such an interesting and illustrative example of the kind of work she does that I thought that was really cool when she talked about not being able to get a bike during the pandemic I, rec- I remember that I wasn't able to get canning lids for the longest time and it was interesting how those kind
0: of really basic things seem to be selling out but that's a to- yeah people realized that we needed them <laughs> like oh we need we might need to like can our own fruits and vegetables we might need to um, you know bake our own bread i have not learned to bake my own bread yet i will um, admit but it is a yeah i mean we're all really getting to uh, getting to a place of coming to coming to terms with what we need to learn to do to survive.
1: So, speaking of family traditions, I didn't know if you wanted to talk a little
0: bit about your. Oh, yeah.
1: Your, <laughs>
0: my family tradition. I have to your drink. Okay. <laughs> to get drunk. I will stop that. Yeah. Right Sorry, now. that was my. <laughs> Once you start that, you just kind of. Um it has a it has a certain uh, volition of its own. It does. It just it has yeah, it has its own the family state. tradition volition. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, so my family tradition apparently is name change. I discovered um when I was talking to my cousin uh, last week and uh, we were noting how many people in my grandparents' generation and my great-grandparents' generation changed their names from um, their Italian names to uh, to these, like, way more Anglicized names. And we were talking about that because I got my name change paperwork, finally, from my divorce. And um, that was super exciting. And... I decided that in the family tradition of changing names, I would uh, go ahead and do that first and last. My great-grandfather went from Giovanni Damiani to John Daniel. (sighs) So boring. And, you know, all well and good, all well and good. Um, And... uh, And so I am going to be taking the family name back and, uh, and I'm also going to be making another change and I'm going to save that, uh, revelation for the, uh, for the next time we Meet. yes because i'm a mistress of suspense mm-hmm. so what the folk listeners the names
1: may change but what the folk remains the same the same old folkery that you're used to with the same yes. old folking faces
0: <laughs> folking voices this folking voice isn't gonna change although who knows maybe maybe the next no i can't that would be way too much of a commitment i'm not that i'm not gonna change my voice should i give my should i give my next self an accent if only if you can be
1: consistent with it, and you're not like you know Kevin Costner and Robin Hood, Prince of using it, where you're like I'm English and now I'm like not. stop firing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Hello. <laughs> uh, yeah. So just like my great grandparents were not able to change their accents, I'm not going to change my voice. Uh, but I will change my name, and so the next episode we release will uh, be under that one. Cool. Yay! What the folkers or what the folksters? What the what the folkarinos? I don't know. I feel like Mark Maron calls his listeners the what the fuckers. Oh, nice. That's great. Yeah, we'll have to think of some So I don't know if we can be what the Fokers, but we can all uh, ten know, of say- you
1: that are out there. <laughs>
0: Hey, all all of you out there, I know you're out there in all the different countries. I, I see all the different countries that that uh, show up, and I think that's pretty neat. So thanks for being out there. Thanks for being our What the Folk fam. How about that? Um, I like that. What the Folk fam. That just happened. Bam! that's who you are. We love you.
1: Yeah, we love you What the Folk fam. Speaking to the What the Folk fam, we are going to be doing a couple episodes on the TV show MASH. So
0: if you wish to bone up, watch MASH. (laughs) Um, Yes, do that. Unless you are of the demographic that already knows uh, MASH and already knows what we're going to be talking about. But still watch again because we're going to be adventuring into a slightly more critical lens, but also having a lot of fun. With our um, celebrity crushes and our critiques and our nostalgias and shit.
1: Yeah, and if you, like, just want to watch some stuff really quick, you could probably start, like, I think episode 15 in season one is really where they start getting shit dialed in. Or you could start with, like, middle seasons or something to get the general feel for the show if you haven't watched it, but... I think if
0: you're You've like... you are more well, notes than I have.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I went back and watched. Anyway, um, if you're over the age of 40, you probably already watched it. But if for some reason you haven't,
0: um, yeah. I don't think over the age of 40, because you know what? We're almost over the age of 40, and nobody in my generation other than a couple of kids, So maybe 50. (laughs) I think, like, older than that, even. Like, who watches MASH? We're going to find out. We'll do a poll in the places where the old people do polls and surveys. It will be great.
1: You haven't already been vaccinated for COVID. Have you watched MASH?
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, anyway, so yeah, we're gonna talk about that shit. Hang out with us, and it'll be fun. And um, we'll also uh, we'll also probably uh, I don't know what else make up new names for things. Yeah, new, new word saying. Same old. What the fuck? New words saying. We may or may not be high. Yeah. <laughs> At any <laughs> given moment, um. when we don't have a guest, anything goes. <laughs>
3: A snowflake, one of a kind, ain't nobody else like me. I'm a snowflake, no to a like. I'm surrounded by diversity. Some people say we're gonna melt away, they don't know we're making plans. We're gonna organize, and when we open our eyes, we're gonna have ourselves an avalanche. Well, the G-O-P keeps telling me. They're gonna make this country great But a few of them Have forgotten about The separation of church and state Well we learned about it Back in elementary school It's not a difficult thing to see That without it We could all be living Inside somebody else's Theocracy I'm a snowflake One of a kind Ain't nobody else like me I'm a snowflake no to a life I'm surrounded by diversity some people say we're gonna melt away they don't know we're making plans we're gonna organize and when we open our eyes we're gonna have ourselves never
0: what the folk has been co-produced and co-hosted by Sarah baronowskis and Emily Yates this episode's guest has been Carla gover and her music which we have featured has been Dangerous Women, and I'm a snowflake. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you join us again. Thanks. See you soon.
3: I've heard it said that the welfare state is the root of all evil today. Those lazy bums need to suck it up, get out and work for honest pay. But repeating a thing doesn't make it true. We all know where the problem lies when 1% Owns more of the wealth than everybody else combined. Wealth president wants to sell our parks and eliminate the EPA, roll back regulations and let the corporations have their way. But billionaires need to eat and breathe just the same as everyone. And if the crops all die oceans rise. Their money won't help them none. I'm a snowflake, one of a kind. Ain't nobody else like me. I'm a snowflake, no two alike. I'm surrounded by diversity. Some people say we're gonna belt away. They don't know we're making plans. We're gonna organize and when we open our eyes we're gonna have ourselves in avalanche one more thing i'd like to say just set the record straight religious freedom doesn't guarantee your right to discriminate i can marry whoever i want and i've got the right to choose so keep your laws off my body and out of my bed and i'll do the same for you because i'm a snowflake one of a kind ain't nobody like me I'm a snowflake no two alike I'm surrounded by diversity some people say we're gonna melt away they don't know we're making plans we're gonna organize and when we open our eyes we're gonna have ourselves an avalanche we're gonna organize and when we open our eyes we're gonna have ourselves an avalanche